Let me ask you a different question here. What does worship mean to you? And when do you worship God? I know in many ways sometimes we reduce worship to music. In fact, we call, some of us call the music team the worship team. And in some churches, the music director is called the worship director. Or the worship leader. So if the music director is the worship leader, and if music team is the worship team, then what happens when the music team is not leading the music? What portion of the worship service is worship service? What is worship to you? Giving praise and honor to God. Let us look at the book of Leviticus and see if it will help us understand what is worship and what it costs to worship God. So the children of Israel are in the wilderness, in the desert where God commanded Moses and Aaron to build the, uh, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle a place where they could go and worship God. The tabernacle is a central place for worship. The tabernacle reminds the Israelites in the desert that the presence of God is not just with them, but it is among them. It's the same word that is used for Jesus Christ coming into the world. He came so that he can tabernacle with us, so that he can dwell among us. And God gives some instructions in Leviticus. He says, the Lord said to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the worship center, he said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. So there is a, a choice here. And then he unpacks that. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect, without blemish. The animal for sacrifice has to be without blemish. You take your best, in other words. Bring as you are offering an animal from either the herd or the flock,
a male without defect, you must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So that you bring it there so that the priest can look at it and make sure it has no blemishes, that it has no defect, that it is perfect and it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So the reason for this burnt offering is atonement. Atonement is the act of reconciling with an offended person. In this case, God is the one who is offended and the worshiper that brings the animal is the one who wants to reconcile with God. And so the placing on of the hand on the animal reflects a transfer of your sin and your guilt to the animal. So when the animal is accepted, it is accepted on your behalf. God is teaching his people of what it means to worship him. He's teaching them that it's going to cost them to worship him. And it's going to cost them their best. The purpose of the burnt offering is the atonement. It will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Now, verse 5 to 6. I just want, I want to explain that, and for those of you that uh, this may seem too graphic, I am sorry. But when you present that animal, the priest looks at it, it has no blemish. That means you cannot take an animal that is, uh, has missing one leg and say, I'm going to present it because I don't need it. You don't take an animal that uh, you don't like and say, well, I don't like this one. I'm going to give it to the Lord. No, you look and take the one that you like, the one that is perfect, the one that you would like to keep. And that's the one that you give to the Lord. But also, when you read, you realize, God realizes that people are different. They are differently blessed. They are at a different places in their financial or their wealth. And therefore, he allows that everyone gives without impoverishing themselves. So he allows you can give. If you if you are taking from a herd, you can give a male. Uh, if you are taking from a flock of sheep, you can give a lamb. If you are not able, you can also give a bird, depending on who you are and where you are in your economy. God understands that. That means he does not expect those who are wealthy 
to give the same with those who are poor. He still expects them to give their best. So let's say, for example, you can afford a Ferrari. And there's another person here who can afford a Toyota. And God is, I think they are different anyway. God expects the one who can afford a Ferrari to give a Ferrari. And the one who can afford Toyota to give that. The one who can afford a bicycle to give a bicycle. That's how sensitive and how conscious God is. Because he is looking for faithfulness. So when you bring that animal, the priest examines it and it is accepted. You put your hand on it to show that you are willing to have this animal that you have brought to die in your place. Then you take a knife and you slaughter it. In the presence of the priest on the altar, you slaughter it and that's not enough. You cut it into pieces after skinning it and the priest will collect the blood. And that blood will be sprinkled on the entrance of the altar. Sprinkles the blood because life is in the blood. But you do the slaughtering, you do the cutting of that animal into pieces. God wants his people to realize that sin is so destructive that it takes a life. It takes another life for your sins to be covered. And so here he presents his people with a visible image so that every time you bring that animal, you slaughter it, you should see yourself in that animal because that animal is dying and going through that pain, that slaughtering, that shedding of blood on your behalf. And when that happens, your sins are covered. And that would happen every time you bring a burnt offering. Because a burnt offering, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, it is a reminder of our sins. And verse 4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of the animals to take away sins. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. So that means it's reminding you that you are a sinner. It's not taking away your sin, it's covering your sin so that you can continue to have fellowship with the Lord as you look forward for the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. The altar here signifies a place of death, a sorrowful place. 
John, in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus coming towards him, John points his disciples and he tells them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they hear the Lamb of God, the Jews could connect that with the sacrifices that they make. Because the sacrifices that they would make, it would be a lamb or a god. So they know what John the Baptist means when he tells them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as it took an animal to die in the place of the sinner who has come to worship God, it took Jesus Christ to die in your place and mine. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And when you have cut this into pieces, the priest will take the skin, the, all the pieces will be placed on, a, on the altar, and they will be consumed with fire. They will be burnt to ashes. And that is an expression of complete surrender to the Lord. It is an act of total devotion. See, you and I are sacrifices. You and I are to present ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices. You and I have to keep on giving ourselves to the Lord every time we are reminded of what he has done in our lives. So what does it cost to worship the Lord? The Israelites were required to give an animal without blemish, without defect. They were allowed, required to give their best. When God wanted us to worship him, because our sins separate us from God, because our sins are, are a hindrance between us and God, God provided his son to die on the cross. God gave his best so that we can be able to worship him. What does it cost you? To worship God. Now Christians are famous for saying, well, Christ paid for everything, so everything is free. Is it really free? Is there anything that God requires of us? Yes, Christ has paid for everything, but we need to show that we accept what he has paid for by doing what he expects us to do. So there is a requirement. It's like this. It is the right for every child to get education. It is the right for every child to go to school. 
If you deny your child the opportunity to go to school, you are violating their right. If you deny them their right to get education, you are violating their right. But when this child goes to school, he has a responsibility. Right? You need to work hard at school. That is your responsibility. Every right has a responsibility. You can't just claim, yeah, it's my right to go. Yes, it's your right to go, but it is your responsibility to do what is needed at school. And if you fail in that responsibility, you are also violating your right. And therefore, yes, God has given us the right to be his children, those who have believed in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ died in our place. But does that take away our responsibility as believers? What does it cost to worship the Lord? See, some religions requires people to sacrifice their children or to sacrifice animals or to speak to the dead or to speak to the ancestors. Some religions require people to do strange things, to show their sorrow. God is not asking us to do that. He asks us to give ourselves. That is what he's asking. He's asking that we give ourselves. Look at Romans chapter 12. This is a passage that many of you know, and I'm trying to, to be slow here so that we can uh, understand one another. I'm restricting myself so that I don't get carried away. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, as you think of God's mercy, how he has been merciful to you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Other version says, this is your reasonable worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, worship doesn't happen until we give ourselves. 
And the giving ourselves here is not an event. It is a lifestyle. That's why sometimes here we say we postpone this worship service until next Sunday because worship has to continue with you. Worship is not when you come to church and you are singing or praying or, or listening to God's word. Worship is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle, a lifestyle that brings pleasure to the Lord. When you are at your job, if you work knowing that it is God who has given you that job and you are doing your best to bring glory to him, you are worshiping God at your job. Now, Christians are so confused that they have separated what they do and what they think they do for God. If you belong to God, then everything you are doing, you are doing it for the Lord. That's where you should have said amen. Maybe you don't agree with me, that's why. You have heard people say this, uh, put God first, then what? Then family, then church, then other things. I think that kind of teaching comes from Satan. If you are putting God first and then there is something that comes second, you are reducing God to something else. And then what will come last? The Bible says that he is the first and the last. If he is the first and the last, then everything else has to be in between. If he's the one that starts and finishes, you cannot have, you cannot put him first and then put something else that follows to the last. I know I'm confusing you. It is intentional. God cannot be first in your life. How do you put him first? Is it by waking up in the morning and doing your devotions and checking in your, in your notebook or whatever you do that I have put God first? Is it by waking up in the morning and praying and then tell yourself, I have put God first, now I can do what I want. God cannot be first in your life because God has to be everything in your life. He has to be above everything. Everything else you do has to flow from God. If God is first in your life, you are saying that you have a list where you determine where God 
stays. He's no longer in control. If he has to be in control, he's going to be the Lord of all. And you cannot put the Lord of all in a place. He has to be everywhere in your life. He has to own you. And if he owns you, you have no place to put him first. Because he is the last and the first. He's the one that we start with and he's the one that we finish with. This will take time for some of you to understand and accept. Just tell me, how does it look in life to put God first? Help me understand that. Will someone who is able to help me understand that maybe I'm wrong? I'm willing to be corrected. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. See, it doesn't, it, it doesn't give a place for anything else. If you can trust the Lord with all your heart, there is no first place and second place. Now, I know sometimes we tell each other that I love you with all my heart. And that's an expression to show that you are genuine in your love and all that. But you know, God says, the first commandment says what? You shall love the Lord with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength, and all your soul. It's everything. That means we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it is in that, that circle of his Lordship that we live our lives. We don't have another life, and then a life with Jesus Christ. We only have one life, and that life as a believer, it is lived with Jesus Christ. That means everything that I am doing, I am doing in Christ, because Christ is always in me. When I am sinning, I am sinning in the presence of the Lord. Nothing is hidden from him. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord in you. There is no time that the Holy Spirit is away from you if you are a believer. That means everything that you are doing, he is there with you. That's a scary thought. But it is true. 
And maybe, maybe this is not at our level. Maybe this is too much for us. But God cannot, you cannot put him on a list. You cannot put him together on, on a schedule. You cannot do that. God has to be the schedule. And then everything else fits in there. And that is a worshipful lifestyle. A lifestyle that realizes that I am living this life in the context of my, my, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ has to be over all. He is either, someone said, he is either the lord of all or not the lord at all. There is no other Lord except Jesus Christ. Worship is a lifestyle that brings pleasure to God. And this lifestyle will cost us our best. It will cost us our best because it cost God his best. That's why every time you are doing something, whatever you are doing is a testimony of your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian. If at work people know that you are a Christian, you should know that they are looking at what you are doing because everything you are doing as a Christian is a testimony of your faith with Jesus Christ. Everything you are doing tells people something about your faith in Christ. Because worship is a lifestyle. It's not just when you sing or when you're praying or when you bow down or when you come to a worship service. It is a lifestyle. You are a worshiper anywhere you are. Preach it, Pastor Valerian. <laughs> In John chapter 12, there is a woman who came to Christ. Her name is Mary Magdalene. And she came with an expensive perfume and she anointed Jesus' feet and his hair. And Judas was there and he looked and he didn't like it. And he said, why is she wasting this expensive oil? We could sell it and give the money to the poor even though he said that because he was the treasurer and he probably wanted to take some money for himself. And Jesus said that what Mary was doing would be remembered because she was preparing him for his death. But Mary used an expensive perfume. Mary understood that everything that Jesus had done for her could not be compared with anything she could do for him. 
there is a woman that when people were giving were giving their offerings and tithes, Jesus was looking and there was an old woman who gave two coins. And Jesus said, she has given more than everyone else because she gave what she had. She gave all that she had. It's not about how much we can do. It's about how faithful we can be. Worship will cost us our best because it cost God his best. And this is why we celebrate communion. Communion is an act of worship. It is an act of worship that helps us celebrate God's forgiveness, enjoy his peace, and share his love. This is the reason we celebrate communion. Communion is a time of celebration. It reminds us of the Lamb of God who was crucified, who died on the cross, and his blood streamed from that cross so that you and I can have our sins forgiven. It reminds us of the sorrow that Jesus experienced on our behalf, but also of the joy that we get when our sins are forgiven. That's why we celebrate communion. It is a testimony of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. But it is also a sign of God's grace that offer, offers us a place in his family. Communion reminds us that the gospel is a bloody message. Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot preach the gospel and ignore the cross. Because the gospel is a bloody message. It took the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us to be saved. The gospel is a bloody message because it cost Jesus his life. And that's why worship will cost our best because it cost God his best. And so today as we celebrate this communion, I will ask you if Jesus Christ is not yet your savior, unless you take this time to acknowledge him as your savior, unless you take this moment to turn to him, ask him to forgive you and to save you, you are not required to participate in this communion. Communion is for believers. It demonstrates our willingness to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is what the Israelites, God is teaching them to do when they bring that animal, they put their hand on it, they slaughter it and put the pieces on the altar to be consumed with fire. They are demonstrating their willingness to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And communion teaches us the same thing. We are 
demonstrating our willingness, our willingness to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let that be in your heart and your mind as you participate in this.